from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first scripture reading comes from Psalm 22, verses 23 through 31. Hear the word of God for you and for me. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. To him, indeed, shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him, the generations will be told about the Lord, and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord, Thanks be to God. Thank you, Gavin. Thanks for being here today and offering your gifts in worship. So thankful for our friendship. Our second text uh, for today is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. It's a text that we typically hear during the Lenten season under the heading of the temptation of Jesus. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone." Jesus said to him, again, it's written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. 
For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve God only. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Have mercy on us in such a way that that our eyes would see and our ears would hear the word that you have for us today. That we could be challenged, be changed, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to begin the sermon today by saying something about the symmetry between the story I read for us from Matthew 4, the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. I want to say something about the symmetry that story has with the story of the people of Israel, particularly as they find themselves wandering in the wilderness for 40 years post their liberation from Egyptian slavery. Because I think to understand to really get at the heart of what's happening in Matthew chapter 4, we really need to turn back to that story of Israel's story. And they're wandering in the wilderness for those 40 years. That story as it comes to us in the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy. And I think what we'll discover as we connect these two stories, what we'll discover is that the three temptations that Jesus faced in Matthew 4 all have a parallel in the story of Israel. All have a parallel in the story of their wilderness wandering. So I'm going to start there in just a minute by connecting the dots, by elevating the symmetry between these two narratives in the hopes that we can understand what's happening in Matthew 4 in a deeper way. After I do that, I then want to drill down a little bit in the text, and I want to reflect on one very specific, one very particular choice that Jesus made in this text. It's a choice that he made in his freedom. It's a choice that he made born of his own will, born of his own desire, that serves as a sort of testimony and a proclamation to his fidelity and faithfulness to God and God's particular call on his life. And at the end of the sermon, I'm going to suggest to you and I'm going to suggest to myself that the choice that Jesus made in this text is a choice that we're invited to make as well. Like I said, I'll get to that choice toward the end of this sermon. But I want to begin by noting the symmetry between this story and the story of the people of God and their 40-year wandering in the desert. Uh, The author Matthew in the fourth chapter tells us that after a period of fasting and after a period of prayer, the tempter, also known as the devil, but literally the tempter, approached Jesus with three propositions. First, to satisfy his hunger, he invited Jesus to turn stones into bread. Second, to discover whether God was truly for him, to discover whether God would fulfill God's promises, 
to prove that Jesus was, in fact, under God's providential care, the tempter asked Jesus to take a leap of faith, to jump from the pinnacle of the temple and to trust that God would save him. And finally, finally he asked Jesus to worship him. And as a reward for that worship, the tempter would grant dominion and would grant political power over all the nations. Interestingly, these three temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness are also ones Israel faced in their journey. For the first temptation, we go back to Exodus 16 and we hear the people grumbling against Moses and Aaron. They're complaining against these leaders for having led them into the wilderness. They begin to recall how even when they were an enslaved people, they at least had food to eat. So they make their complaint, not just against Moses and Aaron, but they start to make their complaint against God. And then God speaks to Moses promising that God would supply manna from heaven to sustain them, enough for everyone and enough for each and every day. Literally, God will fulfill the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus actually recalls that story in the midst of his own temptation. We know that because he quotes from Deuteronomy 8. The extended passage reads like this. Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. He humbled you by by letting you hunger, then by feeding you with manna, with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted, in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In this first temptation, Jesus is modeling a faithfulness that God will supply his every need. He does not need to take matters into his own hands. He is demonstrating a trust that God will deliver him. And he knows and he acknowledges in this first test that his life is not dependent upon bread alone, but is ultimately dependent on the very word of God. The second invitation the tempter offers is for Jesus to hurl himself down from the pinnacle of the temple and trust that God will come to his rescue. Jesus pushes back again, this time by quoting Deuteronomy 6, 16. You should not put the Lord your God to the test. This particular line is connected to the narrative in Exodus 17 where we learn that the wandering people of God, they actually start to test God. They start to challenge God. They question God's plan to liberate them from Egypt in the first place, let alone the plan that God had in leading them through the wilderness journey. They even start to articulate a longing to be back in the bondage of slavery. They start to lament their current situation, even though it's a situation of freedom as they wander in the wilderness. They start to wonder aloud if God will actually keep God's promises. Will God lead them to safety? Will God secure their future? The people literally ask, is God for us or not? For Jesus, he does not ask that question. 
He doesn't have the faintest desire to test God. He doesn't need to make God prove God's faithfulness or fidelity to him. He simply trusts that God will be God. He trusts that God will be faithful. He does not have to put God to the test on that front. He simply trusts that God will do it. In the final invitation, the tempter offers Jesus unending political power and dominion over all the kingdoms of the world if he but bows down and worships him. Now for the people of God, as we look back to that Exodus story in the wilderness wandering, for the people of God, loyalty to God often waxed and waned, especially in the wilderness. Hosea put it this way, later on in their story, describing Israel's unsteady obedience with these words. Imagine God speaking to God's people by saying this, your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Like all of us, like all of us, our love and faithfulness toward God ebbs and flows. It hits some highs and hits some lows. Jesus, however, is resolute He's not prone to idolatry the way we are. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, Worship the Lord your God and serve God only. When we link the wilderness temptation story of Jesus with the wilderness wandering of the people of Israel, we notice that Jesus does something that they and we simply cannot do. And that is be fully and completely obedient to God. Human sin corrupts us and prohibits us from perfect obedience. And our disobedience has ramifications in the world. Breaks relationship with God. It breaks relationship with our neighbor. It even creates turmoil and anxiety within our own selves. The good news of the gospel, however, is this, that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He was perfectly obedient to God, perfectly obedient. And in his obedience, we actually discover our salvation. In his obedience, we discover our freedom in this age and in the age to come. As Paul put it in his letter to the church in Galatia, we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through the faith of Jesus Christ. The gospel invitation, friends, is simple. Put your faith in the faith of Jesus Christ. Invest your faith in his faith. Root your obedience in his obedience. We do not trust in our own works, nor do we even trust our own faith. What we believe and what we have yet to believe For we trust in the faith of Jesus Christ. We trust in the obedience of Jesus Christ. And in that trust, we find courage and we find freedom to make the choices that he made. And what is the specific choice that he made within this text from Matthew 4? I'd like to suggest that Jesus made the choice to be a different kind 
of Son of God. Jesus made the choice to be a different kind of Son of God than what the world had seen and what the world had expected from sons of God. Jesus made the choice to be different. Remember the first two temptations. The tempter begins by saying, if you are the Son of God. Now the Greek word translated to the English word if is probably better translated to the word since because that particular Greek word carries an assumption that what is being said is actually true. I think it's more accurate to read it like this. Since you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Since you are the Son of God, hurl yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Now this title, Son of God, was not unique to Jesus. Rulers and military leaders and and imperial leaders were also hailed as sons of God. They used this title as a way to justify their own power, that it was divinely inspired and divinely ordained, that their violence and their authority and their dominance and their rule had credibility because it was given by the gods. In fact, the Roman emperor Tiberius, who was on the throne at the time of Jesus's ministry, was actually called the son of the divine, the son of God. He was one of Rome's great generals, conquering and destroying his enemies and expanding the Roman empire into Germania. Sons of God in Jesus's day were known for their power, Sons of God in Jesus' day were known for their violence. They were known for their might. They were known for their rule, satisfying their own personal needs and own personal wants and doing what was required of them to maintain their control, to maintain their power at all costs. But Jesus shows up as a different kind of son of God. I mean, think of it in these terms. When Jesus was tempted to turn stones into bread to satisfy his own hunger, he refused. But when Jesus was teaching and a great crowd gathered around him, he took five loaves of bread and two fish and turned it into a feast that fed 5,000 people. He used his power not to satiate his own desires, but to satisfy the desires of others. You see, he was a different kind of son of God. When Jesus was tempted to test God and to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, he refused. But remember the time that he prayed in the garden. Not my will, he prayed, but your will be done. As he took a a sort of spiritual leap, he took a spiritual plunge into the darkness of Holy Week as he jumped into the abyss of the cross, trusting that God would be God even in his darkest hour. Sons of God during Jesus' day would have never let themselves get to the garden, let alone the cross. They would have taken up their sword and they would have taken up their shield and they would have sought to annihilate anyone who challenged them. They would have chosen violence, but Jesus chose another way. Jesus chose the way of the cross and not the way of the sword. You see, Jesus is a different kind of son of God. And when the tempter asked Jesus to bow down and worship him, and as a reward for his loyalty, 
he'd be granted the kingdoms of the earth, Jesus refused that as well. But Jesus did not refuse in his life to trust that God would vindicate his obedience. Trusting that God would vindicate his faithfulness. He did trust that in life and in death, he belonged to God. And God raised Jesus from the dead and declared that this one was indeed the true son of God. The writer of Ephesians put it this way, that God has put Christ over all rulers, authorities, powers, and kings, not only in this world, but also in the next. God put everything under his power and made him the head over everything. You see, the thing that the devil promised was something that the devil could not provide because only God could provide that in the re resurrection of Jesus Christ and the authority that God invented invested in Christ himself. In other words, Jesus is Lord and Jesus is a different kind of Lord because he's a different kind of son of God, a different kind of friend of God than what the world would have known or what the world would have expected. His sonship was marked by generosity and compassion in meeting the needs of others. It was marked by a nonviolent trust in the providence and sovereignty of God. And it was marked by resurrection power that acknowledges that God is God and that God can take what is broken and mend it, that God can take what has been deemed irredeemable and redeem it, that God can take what was dead and raise it to new life. And so here's the question I'm asking myself today. It's the question I'd invite you to consider as well. What kind of child of God will we be? What kind of daughter of God will we be? What kind of son of God will we be? What kind of Christian will we be? Is it the kind of Christian that the world has come to expect in these days? Is it the kind of, of Christian that the world is, is getting used to? The kind of Christian that demonizes the other as an enemy and tries to, to silence them at all costs? The kind of Christian who, who sympathizes with white supremacists and violent extremists? The kind of Christian who's more interested in pursuing institutional solvency than pursuing humility and kindness and justice? The kind of Christian who passively permits sin to continue in the life of the church because they're afraid to speak the truth in love? The kind of Christian the world is getting used to who completely and totally privatizes their faith and believes that they don't need the church and they don't need to belong or be accountable to the body of Christ, that somehow they can do it on their own. The kind of Christian who cozies up to political power and makes idols out of political platforms and elected officials kind of Christian that's known for what they are against and not for what they're for. The kind of Christian that shows up with so much self-righteousness and certitude and claims dominion and control and authority that actually only belongs to God. The kind of Christian that expects piety and 
and the highest standards of ethical behavior from others, but doesn't apply those same standards to themselves. What kind of daughter, what kind of son will you be? What kind of Christian will we be? Friends, Jesus chose to be a different kind of son of God than from what the world expected and what the world was getting used to. And I strongly believe that in this moment, our moment, this time, the church and the world is desperate, desperate for a new kind of Christian, which is really an old kind of Christian. And so perhaps this is our wilderness test. Will we choose to be the Christian who lives with compassion and generosity in meeting the needs of others? Will we choose to be the Christian who lives with a nonviolent trust that God will be God in and through all things? Will we choose to be the Christian who believes and lives as if resurrection is actually possible, that new life is possible? And that in the words of that great poet Bono, that love is bigger than anything that stands in its way. Friends, as we remain on this Lenten journey, may we continue to learn to put our faith in the faith of Jesus Christ. And may we also be a different kind of child of God. May we be a different kind of Christian that the world expects or that the world is getting used to. And may we be like Christ and choose a way that's marked by compassion, that's marked by nonviolent trust, and marked by resurrection power. May that be our choice for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the world. Amen.